This is Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with correspondent Sanjan in Berlin. You're joining us for part two of our investigation into conflict, and not just any kind of conflict. Not road rage on the highway, not with a stranger who cut in front of you at the bus stop, not even with that guy who talks too loud at the office. We're talking about conflict in the most intimate of places, at home, and in our shared living spaces. Whether you currently live with another person or not, you definitely did at some point in the past, even if it was only your family of origin. And even though the experience of living with roommates or a partner or in something like an intentional community is full of great things, like shared meals, spontaneous fun, companionship, there are also a multitude of places where we can get caught up in conflict. So since two-part series has been looking at why we get into the conflicts we do when we live together, and how we can use conflict to better understand ourselves and each other, and what practically we can do about it. The conversations with our guests here in part two will focus on a specific kind of shared living space, that of intentional communities. These are communities that come together around a shared set of values and with a vision. And even though this might sound pretty different from your average roommate or cohabitation setup, there's actually quite a lot in common. So maybe you'll hear your own situation reflected in these stories. Here's our correspondent, Senjan. Distribution of household and community tasks. Who takes the initiative to set up a cleaning schedule? Who volunteers their free time to track grocery costs and manage shared finances? Who takes care of the kids or finds a babysitter? Who makes Christmas happen? Who is a social connector and makes the neighbors meet each other? Who is the emotional well-being fairy, constantly giving care and attention to those who need a shoulder to cry on? The topic of contribution and participation, according to community facilitator Laird Schaub, is a reliable lightning rod issue, one that tends to be full of tension and strong opinions for all people involved. It's usually not the money part. It's usually the non-money part. The more tricky part is the labor contributions. And so you've got several ways this shows up. Well, one of them is what counts, you know, and some people are thinking, oh, shoveling snow, cleaning toilets. Okay. But what about the contributions on governance, like in committees or the accounting role? Does that count the same as pulling weeds in the garden? What about the social? What about emotional labor? Sure. sure. I mean, for instance, people are support roles or the people who plan parties. Does that count the same? Those are conversations. What counts to satisfy this expectation? In my experience, the differences in participation that I've experienced in my community, they stir up feelings of unfairness, you know, of um, feelings of, of either, oh, I'm being taken for granted. People are taking advantage of me. I'm not seen. I'm not appreciated. And I think you mentioned, you know, some people might feel like they're freeloaders and others feel like they're martyrs. As you were mentioning before, that it's it's often much more about this emotional affective experience of the difference in participation than necessarily what is the concrete differential. How do we exist with those feelings? Because we can't equalize these dynamics. You know, they're they're going to be existing. That's just the way that society is. How can we allow those things to be present and not have them be draining for us? Well, a lot of my answers to issues that come up in groups is you have to learn how to talk about hard things. And that, and so in this case, a way on the topic of participation that I've had a fair amount of success with is let's take time to sort of go around the room and have everybody say, what is it you're doing for the community as however you define it, 
What do you think is a contribution to the community that you're doing? And that's important because a lot of people don't know what each other is doing. They know that somebody's not doing the same thing they're doing. And they often may feel like I might be being taken advantage of because I'm doing this thing and others are not. And they're not aware of a different kind of contribution somebody's making that they're not doing. There's a way in which this may balance out more than they know. So information is important. And if it's easier to start rather than with accusations, start with self-disclosure. This is what I'm doing. Now, everybody may not value all those contributions equally, but at least they get a much richer picture of what actually is happening. And all this, the wealth of contributions that are going on, I think it's good for groups to think of it as like a trip to the dentist. Every so often you have to clean your teeth. Well, every so often you have to go and clean up the accumulation of irritation. Let's get it out on the table. Let's work with it. Let's start, let's reset. There is an immediate challenge and an invitation that's also a challenge to reflect on yourself. And there's also a question because it does depend on people's level of their own awareness and and what the average group self-awareness level is. Um, So if you've got a lot of people who are, you know, very reflective, they've done a lot of personal work, they're, you know, paying attention to themselves or paying attention to other people, there's going to be a higher chance that we don't have to get into these very difficult conversations so often because each person is doing their own work. But what happens when you have a group with very diverse levels of of that self-awareness? And there are some people who are naturally, for whatever reason, more skilled at it and other people who are just not as skilled at it. Well, and that's, that's going to happen. What I discovered over decades of that work is what becomes highly predictive of whether or not you're going to enjoy living with somebody is not that they're just like me, but that their communication mm-hmm. skills and their self-awareness. So there's a lot of people that I know that I, I'm not the same as, but I'm totally confident I can work it out with them because I feel like they hear well, they, they're able to shift perspective mm-hmm. to see something from somebody else's eyes. They've learned to discern, like, what is really important or why do I want to be in reaction all the time? The primary challenge of group living is how do I disagree with somebody and feel like that brings us closer together rather than is draining? It's like, oh, you have a different idea about me, about this thing. You, you respond to this, this same event in a different way. Am I threatened by that? Or do I, do I have a combative response or do I have a curious response? Maybe you're seeing something I'm missing. Let me pause and make sure I'm understanding what you're saying. You may help me. You may help me change my mind. That's a good experience rather than you are a threat to my worldview or the way I am in the world. And another situation that I get myself into or I see myself in is there are these situations of uh, of disagreement and conflict and um, there's going to be one party who's more skilled at relating and communicating than the other one. And it seems like then the onus is going to constantly be on that person to reach out to the less skilled, less willing person. Good point. How do we exist with that? You know, because of course it's in service of the long-term wellness of that relationship, but it can feel in the short term that it's like, oh my goodness, I have to always be the one who goes to you and brings you back. Mm -hmm. You know, that's at some point exhausting for me. And at some point I'm going to feel resentful about that. You might. It's also... We have a culture that if you don't stop and think about it, that favors when, you've, when you're thinking about meetings and stuff, some people are quicker to know what they want to say, are more facile in framing what they have to say. So they appear more articulate, more together. They tend to have power and are more persuasive by virtue of speed and comfort talking in the group, all those things. And so you need to think about a, a, an aware group needs to stop and think, how do we 
create an equally available on-ramp to this conversation, take into account that slower thinking doesn't mean poorer thinking. So how do we allow enough breathing room for people to be ready to speak and not let the quick determine how we frame the conversation? And how do we allow people who are not as comfortable speaking in the group a way to get clear what needs to be said so that that is equally weighted in our consideration? So there's a lot of nuances here where if you're not stopping and looking at what's actually happening, we inadvertently stack the deck in favor of certain qualities that are not necessarily helping the group do good work and make it uneven. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of nuance to this. In the example you gave, you need to think around, all right, if it's always one person initiating, then that feels like a burden. And it's like, then that's a conversation. I'm feeling like I'm feeling drained by the fact that it seems like I'm initiating all the time. Let's talk about that. I don't think there's like a right answer. It's like, let's bring that issue on the table and let's figure out what can we do with it. I flip it over to Carl Steyert, another longtime community facilitator, to see what he has to say about this. What I find really helpful is to just be aware of the limits of what we're capable of, you know, to, to be realistic. Like, what can we do with the resources we have? And how can we try to structure our shared living in such a way to help everybody resource themselves as well as possible? Let's add another factor of challenge, which is the fact that let's say some people are really passionate about looking at interpersonal dynamics and navigating conflict with care. And some people really are not interested in willing to engage in that way. Well, okay. First off, just having that awareness and knowing, okay, that's putting some constraints on the vision of what I can lean into in that community, in a sense, in that, okay, we, we, if we all have full-time jobs, then we have a limited amount of time together to be building a life together. To me, that doesn't mean giving up on community. It just means I need to set realistic goals for what I hope to accomplish in my shared living experience, if that's the amount of time we have together. Similarly, if we don't share the same kind of values and vision around how we want to relate, because to me, how we deal with conflict is actually one of the more fundamental aspects of our vision for community. How has it been for you to navigate some people being more skilled and resourced than others and mm -hmm. those being typically the people who might step into leadership roles or who take on more responsibility or ownership for the well-being of a community and its members? Because I think that resentment can tend to be a, a thing that builds up over time mm -hmm. when the same people over and over enact um, responsibility. How have you seen that be navigated? When I think about these kinds of dynamics in community, I often think about both there's the individual dimension, there's the collective dimension, there's the inner dimension, and there's the outer dimension. And by that, I mean, for example, there's the inner work that an individual can do to really resource themselves on a personal level, to set healthy boundaries, to sort of realize, okay, this is what I'm joyfully or uh, willing to take on in terms of leadership or responsibility in a community, or this is how much listening I feel capable to do in a way that's healthy for me. And then realize, okay, like I need to set a boundary, you know, that, that, I, that I need to be able to set my own limits and not 
overextend myself as a community member. And I think it's something that many of us learn through living in community is how to live healthily in an interdependent way. In other words, how can I care for my own needs and care for other people's needs, not in either or way, but in a way that really is constantly sensing into Am I actually overextending towards service when my own basic well-being is getting depleted? And similarly, I think it's important for us to realize that when we live in community, we impact other people. We, other people do have needs. And I think it's crucial to learn to have care and to be contributing to others and not only to focus on one's own needs. So I think that's in the work that I do, in the training, in the facilitation I do with communities, like how to help people navigate that both mm -hmm. and of self-care and community care and to develop the inner awareness to set healthy boundaries. By now, you might have the impression that people who want to live in a place like an intentional community will all be pretty hippie and out there. Maybe you might think, well, most people there are probably pretty peace-loving and conflict-avoidant. Why do we keep talking about conflict? Even lots of people who get involved in intentional communities might have that initial belief that if it takes so much self-awareness, empathy, and communication skills, and if people are really aligned on their values and vision for the place they live in together, then by the time they all get together, shouldn't that already eliminate most kinds of conflict? Haven't they already selected for the best possible situation where conflict has the least chance of arising? Well, from the way I'm describing it, you might not be surprised that in fact, even with all this curation, communities are still made up of a diverse range of people and societal dynamics that we might believe we've left at the door somehow have a way of creeping back in and often faster than you might imagine. I'll start by saying we see often this dynamics related to, let's say, power, privilege, or rank that show up in the wider society, they often, if not always, are going to be sort of replicated or show up on, in some way in, in our living spaces and communities as well. In many communities I've either lived in or been a part of, I'll hear people who identify as female saying, hey, I'm uncomfortable with how much it seems like the the women in this community are defaulting into certain kinds of roles mm -hmm. are, for example, cleaning the kitchen more or, you know, doing more cooking or something like that. So those wider societal patterns definitely get replicated in communities, especially if we're not consciously addressing them and creating kind of counterbalances. So for example, and again, in a really practical sense, how do we address like an imbalance of maybe people's tendency to take on things like cooking or cleaning may it does happen especially if the community gets a bit larger we may actually have some degree of sort of specialization or division of labor where people kind of can maybe somebody really loves to cook whatever their gender identity is they may really love to cook and somebody else really likes to do maintenance work and somebody else really likes to do admin so but as long as i think people are consciously choosing and aware of that choice and we're, we're you know then i think that we we can still be uh, helping to address some of the injustices or inequalities that happen in the larger society and make sure that we're bringing them into conscious awareness and, and creating healthier patterns in community what i hear 
in what you said is the importance of first being aware that there are these societal dynamics and then trying to address them. We're not going to address them perfectly in mm-hmm. uh, in communities, but um, making an effort to instill a structure around it so that the structure itself takes care of it. Absolutely. And, and what you've said speaks to a major, major sort of set of principles that I bring into my work with communities and actually all kinds of organizations, not just intentional communities, but also nonprofits and corporations and other kinds of neighborhoods. But with communities having a clear sense of systems to address different needs in the community. One of the things that I like to keep in mind is that conflict is a natural uh, occurring thing in any relationship, community, system, etc. And I think that's important to keep in mind because unfortunately many of us have had life experiences where conflict hasn't gone well. And so if we've had experiences, whether in childhood, whether in workplaces, friendships, where conflict hasn't gone well, we can, if that's our recurring experience, begin to just have an an equation in our head that like conflict is bad, conflict should be avoided. And so if I continually have bad experiences with conflict, I'm going to avoid conflict. (laughs) And unfortunately, it doesn't make conflict go away. It just makes conflict go underground which sometimes can lead it to be sort of this lurking landmine or volcano that then sort of comes out sideways or erupts even more dangerously or damaging in the future. You've been listening to Carl Stayart, community facilitator and nonviolent conflict trainer with correspondent Senjan. To listen to her full interview with Carl and all the other guests in our program today and to get to links to their work, go to peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com and find the September 2022 episode. We'll hear more from correspondent Sanjan and her guests on today's part two about conflict in the most intimate of places, at home and in our shared living spaces. Short break here and our program resumes soon. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with correspondent Sen John, and now more of her part two investigation into conflict in the most intimate of places at home and our shared living spaces. One aspect of larger societal dynamics that we seem to not be able to shake are power differentials and the dynamics they create in a group. For this, we return to Maria Silvia from part one and how she sees the uneven distribution of power in groups. 
I think the problem is that we don't see it. We don't see them, the inequalities. I think that power is always unevenly distributed. That's, this is very bad news. <laughs> mm-hmm. Very bad news for people. There are still, especially people creating intentional communities who are still, you know, hanging to the belief that a certain decision-making system, a certain organizational structure can make power equal. And I, I don't see that happening, at least not in my lifetime and my daughter's lifetime. Maybe at some point humans will evolve so much that we will be closer to that. But for now, power is always unevenly distributed. It's a kind of an, a rude awakening for people who are idealistic or who believe that as long as we have the same values um, or we come from the same background um, or we're interested in the same things, we're driven by the same mission and vision, that, that the power inequalities will be lessened. But uh, I myself live in an intentional community, an international one in Berlin, and um, and for me, this is so painfully obvious that it's not true, and that, as you say, most likely will never be true because nothing is equal in the world, or nothing is equal in nature and society. Um, it cannot be that way. Yes, we're, we're different. It is extremely painful, I think, to our hearts to accept this but so much more painful to work under the pretense, really, that, no, we have conquered that and we are beyond that. Because what happens when you are in that train of thought is that you start leaving people behind because this lack of awareness. And the thing with power is that we are very aware of how unevenly distributed it is when we don't have it. But when we're in a situation in which we do have it, we are not so aware. That's one of the the central tenets of power. (laughs) Exactly. uh, So it's so important to befriend this energy of power, you know, to learn to live very close to it and have that flexibility to realize, like, I'm Maria, if I'm talking with, you know, my 10-year-old niece, I have almost all the power. Now, I'm Maria talking with this white founder man in my community, I am at the Mm -hmm. bottom of the barrel. And we have to, I think, develop this ability to fluctuate within, in the context, in the social situations that we are, to really be present in an appropriate way, given the power that we have in that situation. So things like race and gender should always be right there at the tip of your fingers in terms of power distribution. Always, even in your marriage, if it applies to your marriage, in intimate friendships, in any place where these levels of conversation are welcomed. They are not always welcomed, unfortunately. But if they are, you should not be the one blocking them with your lack of awareness. Okay, we've talked a lot about conflict, how it can arise in shared living spaces, why it might arise in the moments it does, and what it might mean to each person involved. And my resounding, brilliant conclusion, 
It's complex and depends on a lot of things. You can clap now. But seriously, conflict is complex because people are complex. And that means that systems that are made up of people are orders of magnitude more complex. And, as if we haven't dug into enough fodder for conflict, we're about to delve into one more factor. A deeply psychological one. Have you ever had a nightmare roommate? One where everything seemed like it should be fine, even fantastic on paper. But then, after a little while of living together, you start to notice things. A certain tension in the air. Exchanges that leave you feeling, over time, somehow like you're constantly doing things wrong. Found at fault for things that no one else has ever taken issue with before. Whatever it is, you don't feel settled with this relationship. Maybe you start to wonder, could this be all in my head? Maybe this is really my problem. I asked two experienced community facilitators, Diana Leaf Christian and Carl Stayard, their perspectives on people with challenging personality traits, sometimes called personality disorders, a term that casts a particular kind of shadow. This is a topic that generates a range of opinions, so I invited a specialist in personality disorders, Dr. Rosemary Soucy, in Montreal, to lend her expertise. In general, all personality disorders will lead to difficulty in relationships. This instability is always there since the beginning of adolescence, I would say. So people struggling with personality disorders will say that all their lives long, they have felt unstable. So it's not something that happens to them only in a period of time. It's a continuum in all their life. And then it has to reach a level of severity. So it has to interfere severely with daily life functioning. Okay, so keeping a job, keeping a relationship. When there is a pattern in one's life, when the instability in relationship repeats itself over and over again, and not only, let's say, with intimate relationship, but with all kinds of relationships in one's life. So relationship with colleagues, with friends, with family members, siblings, and in romantic relationships as well. Diana Leaf Christian is the author of Creating a Life Together, a book that anyone with even a little bit of interest in living with others should definitely check out. For Diana, the topic of particularly challenging personalities was a pressing one. Okay, this is quite controversial. So most people, most of the time, may have some challenging behaviors sometimes. And we work that out. We deal with it. But some people have what I call especially challenging behaviors. And these are feeling entitled to special treatment, being self-centered and self-focused, having little to no empathy for others. And some people don't feel it hardly at all or cannot at all or have very little or it's a lot of energy for them to feel any kind of empathy for someone else or their situation and they can't keep it up for too long. This difficulty empathizing with others is something Dr. Susi speaks to as well. In the field of personality disorder, we talk about a problem of mentalization. Okay. Mentalization is a term that was developed by psychiatrists and psychologists. And they came to the discovery or the conclusion that 
people struggling with this uh, disorder had difficulty imagining that someone else can think and react and feel different than what they do for themselves. Okay. So they will tend to interpret the other's reactions and words and actions as if the person were themselves. So projecting a lot of what their internal frames of thoughts are onto other people. Exactly. But with some personality disorders, there's often more than just a difficulty in seeing things from another's perspective or imagining what it might be like to be someone else. And other aspects of these kind of behaviors are people who have a lot of anger, if not actual rage, right under the surface, which can come out when someone disagrees with them. Oh, and the person feels superior to other people. And not only do they feel it, they're just absolutely certain it's true. So when this is obvious, it's the overt form of this kind of challenging behavior. But some people have a secret hidden superiority, but how they act in their persona and with other people is that they're victimized and that they have low self-esteem. But what they take pride in is how much they've been harmed and how much you all are victimizing me here. These behaviors are called by mental health professionals, narcissistic behaviors. And when someone enters a community, small or large, shared group household, or really big like my community, where we have different neighborhoods here, it's very damaging to the community morale. Wow. Diana described eerily pretty much exactly what I've also experienced from time to time in relationships and in shared living spaces. If you type narcissism into Wikipedia, you'll get Narcissism is a self-centered personality style characterized as having an excessive interest in one's physical appearance or image and an excessive preoccupation with one's own needs, often at the expense of others. The term comes from the Roman poet Ovid, who tells the story of a dashingly handsome young man who refused all suitors and so angered the gods with his vanity that he was made to fall in love with his own reflection in a pool of water. But narcissism today isn't as simple as just self-love. Hopefully, we're all a little narcissistic. It's part of having a healthy ego. It's what allows us to be confident in ourselves, have a reasonable amount of ambition, and to bounce back from setbacks. And, to be fair, in the age of social media and selfies, our collective level of narcissism has probably jumped a level or two. So to put it very simply, narcissistic personality disorder talks about a problem of low self-esteem that is often unconscious and will compensate for this low self-esteem in different ways. So it can be in finding grandiose things in their life, or it can be by avoiding life because it would be too risky to experience situations that would reactivate or add on the pain of the low self-esteem. So people with narcissistic personality disorder will be very triggered and it would be very difficult for them to tolerate anything that puts their self-esteem at stake. So humiliation, failure, even sometimes just disagreeing with each other can be felt as an attack on their worth. How does that manifest in relationships? It's unfortunately a very effective barrier to intimacy. So these are people that will have great difficulty to be intimate with someone. 
So to be able to feel vulnerable with someone. So it will usually lead to more superficial relationships. Hmm? And there is also healthy narcissism that we all have, hopefully. It's just like this thing inside of us that want to protect us, protect our sense of worthiness. So we all need some narcissistic rewards in our lives. And it's totally healthy to be proud of oneself, for mm -hmm. instance, um, to be ambitious to some extent. But it becomes pathological when it gets in the way to be able to share at a more intimate level with someone. We've all got a story about someone who might fit this bill. And if you're anything like me, you might already be Googling personality disorders to see if that nightmare roommate, the impossible coworker, or even a member of your family might be well described this way. Trust me, I've done plenty of this. At first, it was a huge relief to finally have a name and words to describe what I'd experienced. But after a while, this very medical way of looking at things was starting to make me feel like I was really limiting the way I was seeing reality. But categorizing and labeling, it was so easy to do. And, to be honest, made it easier for me to let myself off the hook. After all, if somebody else had a difficult personality, then that meant that I couldn't have had anything to do with the problems we experienced. Right? I asked Carl Steyert for his take on using the frameworks of personality disorders to describe the kinds of challenges we might encounter in communities. I realize that what I'm going to say is not the same as what some of my other colleagues who are community facilitators say. I believe there's something that diagnoses are pointing toward that's meaningful and important to be aware of. So what you named as personality disorders, I think it's important to be aware that human beings have different neurology, different chemistry, different traumas with a large T and a small T trauma from our family and life experiences. So there's no doubt that we come to various situations with different resources, different habits, different patterns, etc. I completely accept those understandings. And at the same time, I have a real caution about making diagnoses of people too fixed or too much a focus of how we look at anyone. It prevents us from really seeing the complexity of who they are, from seeing them in a dynamic and uh, relational and evolving way. And I resonate with that very, very much in the sense that, again, I'm not to say, not to say there's nothing to these diagnoses. They're absolutely, it's pointing towards something real, but to use them easily invites the limitation of seeing people in a monolithic or a black and white way, seeing people as their diagnosis, rather than recognizing that we're all highly complex beings who under certain circumstances, any one of us is going to be self-focused and perhaps deeply non-relational or disorganized or not able to hold other people with care, for example. And given the right circumstances, all of humanity will go to those kinds of extremes. Okay, so 
Even though we might all form hypotheses in our minds about the personality disorder that lurks just under the skin of everyone, how do we address that in a constructive way? I do make an effort to translate that into what I'm actually seeing or hearing and needing in that situation. So in other words, like for me, I would translate that as, wow, when I see this person behaving and doing X, Y, and Z, I find myself concerned because I've now had three experiences where I would really like other people's needs to be held with more care, for example, or where I had more sense of consistency in, in what they're saying and what they're doing lines up. But what I hear more often than I consider healthy is people using this kind of diagnosis without that kind of thorough, compassionate, and clear communication and boundary setting. And yet, it is important to raise awareness that some people do have certain problematic patterns in relational dynamics. As Dr. Susi said, these are patterns that persist across many contexts over a lifetime. How do we talk about them to others who might be struggling with something similar? I don't know if it's so useful to talk about the disorders. <laughs> I think uh, as human beings, we are all in a spectrum to be more or less skilled and communication and having harmonious relationships, right? So the disorders are at one end of the spectrum and some people are gifted in being good communicators, being able to mentalize, to understand the difference between people and not being threatened by this. And most of people are between these somewhere in that spectrum, right? So I think what's more important is to raise awareness about how human beings relate with one another and how their own psychology influenced these relationships. We all can reach a point where, because of our own psychology experience, history, memory, we reach our limit in being able to understand someone else. And we reach a point where we are no longer able to to do some good mentalization because the other one is so feels so different than who we are that becomes triggering or threatening for us. So with people suffering from a personality disorder, this limit comes a little bit faster <laughs> or earlier in the process. But I would say that's the only difference because we all can reach that point where we will not be able to understand the other one in front of us. And we become at high risk of provoking or perpetuating conflicts. It's just that people suffering from personality disorders will reach that limit earlier in the process or will be triggered or feel threatened by things that are more like average or from like the ordinary experience of relationships. Okay, this struck a chord with me. People who are more sensitive, like way more sensitive to mundane points of friction than most people. Guess where you might find a lot of this kind of interaction? You got it, when you live with others. You're listening to Correspondents St. John and Community Facilitators Diana Leaf Christian and Carl Steyart, along with psychiatrist Dr. Rosemarie Soucy, on how challenging personalities can lead to conflict in communities and shared living spaces, but also how to understand them and manage ourselves if we find ourselves in relationship with them. You can hear Send John's entire interview with all these guests on our website, peacetalksradio.com, 
look for the September 2022 episode. And we'll have more from today's program after this short break. It's Peace Talks Radio. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls today with Senjan. We all have had relationships with people who seem to bring more conflict to our lives than others. Sometimes our experiences might be so extreme that we may wonder if there's something else going on. Again, our correspondent, Senjan. Sharing living space is different from any other kind of shared space. This is the place where you want to relax, be yourself, let your guard down, and not have to be the well-polished, constantly aware, empathetic person you are in the outside world. For better or for worse, when we come home, we have a tendency to let it all hang out, where someone else might just brush up against it. Most of us, we can go to the grocery store and the cashier is a bit rude with us. And we won't feel threatened by this because we can imagine easily that the cashier had a big day uh, negative experience with a customer before us, et cetera, and we would just forget about it, right? But someone with a personality disorder could feel very threatened by this and take that very personal to the extent that it will ruin the rest of their day. Or they may retaliate somehow against the perceived threat. Yeah. As for the average people, maybe it, it would take a situation that is much more personal to have that impact on us. I'm hoping that this doesn't mean that we can't live with people who are extra sensitive to the rough edges that we all have. But what can we actually do about it? If you've ever lived with an exquisitely sensitive person, you've probably at some point felt like you were being misperceived, assigned with bad intentions, called out for being the villain in their story, criticized for not caring enough, or made responsible for things that you felt didn't make sense. So. What happens when you find yourself in close quarters to one of these situations? Really, there's only three things we can do if we did not screen these folks out during the initial membership process, which is hard to do because a lot of times people can be on good behavior for a while. First of all, learn a whole lot about narcissistic behaviors, which we can learn on YouTube for free. Lots and lots of therapists, life coaches, psychiatrists, and others will tell us about this and what we can do. The second thing, we need to lower our expectations to quit imagining that Jack there is going to care about me or care about our community agreements because he knows that he, they shouldn't apply to him. He knows that in fact he is better than me and he's disdainful and possibly even contemptuous to me and, and also to these other people in meetings or just socially. And so Jack is a little hard to take. 
So if I have lowered my expectations, I don't keep getting hurt each time Jack acts that way. And the third thing is the one that is the real kicker in community, which is to place limits and boundaries on what Jack can do to me and to the community. Placing limits and boundaries on what he can do to me usually means I tell him, Jack, when you speak to me that way, I don't like it and I don't want you to do that. So I need to tell you that. And I want to tell you that if you speak to me that way in the meetings in the future, I will say, Jack, remember how I said, please don't speak to me like that. I'll remind you once. And if you keep doing it, I'll leave the meeting and you'll know and everybody will know that that's why I left. It's because you did that. So that's placing a boundary and that's defending your boundaries. Boy, did I ever feel what Diana was saying. From the way she was talking about it, it was clear that she's definitely contended with her fair share of these kinds of behaviors. And I've done all three of the things she suggested, two different levels of success with people that I've struggled with. And as effective as they might have been to contain the problematic behaviors we're talking about here, I noticed that afterwards, I felt like I had just put distance between me and the other person. I might have pushed away the immediate feeling of discomfort of being with him. But that also meant that the relationship we had would stay as it had been, definitely not one that had grown in closeness through something I had done. I generally came away feeling like I had followed a program for myself on how to engage with a category of a person rather than with the person themselves. And it was usually because I was trying to avoid something I was afraid of happening. Over time, I also thought that I wouldn't like to be someone who always chooses one strategy to deal with a problem. That, to me, would mean that I wasn't changing and learning, that I only knew how to use one tool in my box. So, suppose we're not in fight-or-flight mode when it comes to facing challenging personalities. Suppose we find ourselves in a triggering situation with someone who's showering us with problematic behaviors. Maybe we're in a good space and ready to try something different. What else can we do? Honestly, I think the only thing that can be useful is to learn to communicate better our own feelings and thoughts. And to name explicitly the misunderstanding and to name explicitly our side of things. So I feel like you might be misinterpreting me right now. So I don't know what's going on on your head and inside of your mind, but I can tell you that my thoughts are da-na-na, my feelings are da-na-na right now. So you might believe me or not, but this is really my experience right now. So it sounds like being very clear about where your own boundaries lie and hoping that the other person will respect those boundaries? We can hope that if the person receives that feedback many times, eventually that can raise some awareness as to hey, maybe I'm misinterpreting people or to help the person see that, yeah, it seems that my go-to is to feel threatened when someone does X and Y, Z, right? But that's something different than setting boundaries, though. So you are the subject of boundaries. I think we are also responsible of protecting ourselves. So we are responsible of getting to know our own limits and making sure that they are respected. 
and sometimes, unfortunately, in order to remain respectful of ourselves, we need to end some relationships. We need to put limits that are very firm around us. But I believe that it has also some positive impact on the on the other one, even if it's like ending a relationship. To some extent, it's modeling respect for oneself, what's acceptable and what's not acceptable for us knowing ourselves in that sense. Because if no one gives feedback, then this person may never understand what the impact that they're having on others is. But being courageous and giving that feedback can sometimes be difficult because it also puts that person in a vulnerable place, you know, to say, this is my experience. We see that life is a therapy, right? In the sense that life uh, uh, teaches us about ourselves, we accumulate experiences that help us evolve. So I'm a big believer in saying the truth and not hiding the truth, even if it's difficult. Because when we don't see the truth and we try to compensate for the other's mistakes or patterns or instability, it's as if we postpone their own experience with reality. So it's as if we become an obstacle in their own natural evolution in the sense of healing, learning about oneself. It's almost like um, like just guiding this person along the way, you know, being like a thing that they might bump up against, but they need to bump up against something and know why they bumped up against it. And this is why, especially in closed spaces, when there are a lot of people sharing daily lives together, it becomes then more important to be more explicit about what's going on inside of us. Like we cannot take for granted that people will interpret us correctly. So this is something that can help reduce the amount of conflicts when there's a group of people together. It's to be more explicit, like saying it, like I had the rough night and not feeling so well this morning. So... I would like you not to interpret my grumpiness as something personal to you. So it's possible to add some little comments like this here and there to just be more explicit about what's going on inside of us so that everyone around can know a little bit more about the objective mindset of people. <laughs> I would say that even with people with no disorder living in a group, <laughs> It's a challenge to keep mentalizing in an effective way because it's, it's a lot to process for our brain and the chances to reach our limit are much higher. We say that community is a trigger-rich environment. You know, it's like sooner or later someone or the other triggers you and much sooner than you expect. That's it. So there's a higher risk for conflicts, but it's also an opportunity to get to know oneself better, faster. <laughs> so that's the same thing with family, with a lot of siblings. It's a trigger, but it's also a richness. Okay? Because in being close to many different people, you're kind of forced to face where are your limits and then to reflect on yourself. And that process helps to know oneself better. If you're more isolated, only surrounded by one or two, people that are like you, so to speak, and with them it's easy to have a harmonious relationship. There's less conflict, but there's less self-discovery, you know? 
We say that community is a hallway of mirrors. <laughs> Every person is a mirror for your darkest and your brightest self, is what I have discovered. Diana does make another good point, one that Dr. Susie alludes to as well. The importance of taking care of oneself when in a difficult relationship. And sometimes that self-care comes simply in the form of taking some space. When I removed myself from being around the frightening, rageful, and hostile self-centered person in my community, I was able to feel a whole lot more compassion for her than I could when I was reeling with the shock and the sting of energy hostility and words hostility. There are times you can be around a person and it is so painful because of what they're saying to you and how they're looking at you and their energy. And I would feel stunned, shocked, terrified, stuck, and I would feel abhorrence for this woman. When I wasn't around her for a couple of months, but would see her in passing and say hello or hear what she said in a meeting, or when she put out a really mean email to somebody or to me or to anybody, I was not reeling with shock. I wasn't stunned. I didn't feel abhorrence. I felt a sad, understanding feeling. I felt this feeling like, oh, I understand what it feels like to feel like that. I can relate to that. I wasn't being hurt or affected by it. I was feeling understanding because I was no longer feeling targeted or the brunt of energy arrows or hostility or cruelty. Therefore, not being in the presence to the degree you can do this with people who do those behaviors can give you the space to have more compassion for them from a distance. I had one last question for Dr. Susi. What's something that you would love the general public to know about personality disorders that would help their understanding? I want to say that it's about some sort of psychological immaturity. So we all grow up, you know, we, we go from being a kid to being an adolescent to being a young adult to being a middle age adult, you know, grown up, <laughs> older adult. So this is maturation. People with personality disorder tend to be stuck in psychological spaces that are younger than their biological age. So to some extent, usually we've all been there at one point in our life. So if we see it that way, we can understand a little bit more. We can be more empathetic to what can be the experience of the other person. Let's say you imagine yourself as a 15 years old adolescent and living with a group of people or with a new family or with friends at school and the kind of reactions you had at that time and the kind of emotions you were feeling. It was so intense. <laughs> it's quite intense and we've all experienced this, but some people get stuck in that space and doesn't mean that they cannot evolve. Actually, they will evolve with time. That's the way I would like people to understand personality disorders as people that are somehow stuck in a psychological space that doesn't fit their current responsibility or the, the expectation from society as what should be their role in society and how they should behave and, and manage relationships. But like all human beings, they will evolve with time and 
hopefully uh, mature and become able to deal with relationships and life in general in a more mature and more satisfying way for themselves. I, I believe it usually helps to find some empathy when we think about these disorders in that way, because we can also understand the suffering that comes with it. Yeah, because I would not want to be stuck as a 15-year-old. That no. sounds like a terrible way to experience reality in a world of uh, people who are more more adult and more mature. Yeah, that would make me feel um, somehow underdeveloped or insufficient, I think. So I wonder if that's how it might feel to have a personality mm -hmm. disorder, you know, to feel like I'm constantly not enough. That's certainly part of their experience, at least, of what I've heard in my office, <laughs> I would say. Reaching all the way back to part one of this series, we started with investigating conflict in our family of origin as kids and parents. Then we dug into the messy kitchens and bathrooms of living with roommates for the first time and the kind of pitfalls awaiting us there. After that, some of us might move on to living with a partner and starting our own families. Some of us might live on our own for a while, and some of us might want to continue the co-living adventure with a carefully curated group of people interested in the same. The nature of the conflict we experience depends on so many things. Our own personal awareness, the level of maturity any one of us might have in a group, the way in which we organize our group, the larger societal dynamics that creep their way in, and even some deeply psychological traits that might make co-living an even bigger adventure than it already is. No matter what your current living situation is, whether you're happily mopping floors on your rotation on the cleaning schedule, or about to thank your partner for all the years of laundry washed, dried, and folded, I hope that you've come to accept this omnipresent entity called conflict that's always there in the corner of any group situation, just waiting to ask, just whose dishes are those anyway? Their correspondent sent John. You can hear the full interviews with all of her guests at peacetalksradio.com. This was part two of our two-part program on navigating conflict in places where we live together with other humans. Part one originally aired in August 2022, and this one in September 2022. Find more information on both at peacetalksradio.com. Also, you can hear more stories from Sen on her intentional community podcast called The Life Itself Hubcast. Find it on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Peacetalksradio.com is where you can go to hear all of the programs in our series dating back to 2002. Over 230 of them. See photos of our guests, read and share transcripts, or make a donation to keep this program going into the future, all at peacetalksradio.com. Executive Director is Nola Daves Moses. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. For Senjan and all of us here at the show, thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Mm -hmm.